0: Isaiah chapter 63. We're going to be finishing Isaiah next week. Let's go to our first six verses, which is going to be a review from Sunday. Isaiah 63, verse 1. Who is this who comes from Edom with his dyed garments from Basra? This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red? and your garment like one who treads in the winepress. I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the people no one was with me, for I have trodden them in my anger, trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all of my robes. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. I looked, but there was no one to help, and I wondered that there was no one to uphold. Therefore, my own arm brought salvation for me, and my own fury it sustained me. I have trodden down the peoples in my anger, made them drunk in my fury, and brought down their strength to the earth. All right, let's just review from Sunday. For those of you uh, who were here, it will be sort of a, a review for the first at least six verses. It changes in verse 7. But on Sunday... We went to 2 Thessalonians 2, and we tried to lay out uh, the chronological order that leads up to these verses from Isaiah chapter 63, which is really a picture of Revelation 19, the second coming of the Lord at the battle of Armageddon. But we laid out those events that precede this. um, When the disciples asked the Lord, Lord, just tell us, what, what is it going to be like right before you come? So he gets into talking about four or five different things famines, pestilence, earthquakes in diverse places. And then he says, This is just the beginning of the days of sorrow that are coming. So when Paul was in Thessalonica, in chapter four, he taught about the great catching away in the rapture of the church. Now, the rapture is first mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul calls it a mystery. He says we we shall not all die or sleep, but we shall be changed and transformed in a moment and and in twinkling of an eye. Just like that, the rapture is going to happen. And we went to Matthew 24, talked about the parable of the fig tree, the regathering of the nation of Israel. And the generation that saw the regathering of Israel would actually be the generation that saw the fulfillment of all things. We made the point that last Wednesday, exactly one week ago today was the 68th birthday of the birth of the nation of Israel. On May 14, 1948, David Ben-Gurion declared Israel a state. Well, that was 68 years ago. Well, according to the parable of the fig tree, we're supposed to see the fulfillment of all Bible prophecy when Israel comes back into the land. I quoted Isaiah 11, verse 11, where it talks about regathering them the second time. And, of course, the first time... Would have been the book of Daniel, the Babylonian captivity, when they were out of the land for 70 years, then they came back. But then he talks about the regathering a second time. They've been out of the country since 70 AD, and then in 1948, 68 years ago last Wednesday, they were rebirthed. Then, after the parable of the fig tree, the next verse says, No man knows the day or the hour of these things, but it'll be like the days of Noah. And the days of Noah were, they mentioned it in this little video clip here. Men's thoughts were continually evil all the time. And Noah was in his family, or the only of the eight that were, were saved. And then it gets into the scriptures that deal with the rapture of the church. So Paul's teaching in 2 Thessalonians, he said, I have to write a second letter. Because somebody either wrote a letter, gave a prophecy, that has troubled you greatly. So now I have to write again to remind you the chronology, the order of events, how they unfold, so that they wouldn't be troubled in their heart and their mind. When you read 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, it ends with the verse, therefore comfort one another with these words. And... Um, the rapture is supposed to be a doctrine that brings forth comfort to the church as we see these things unfolding. Even believers are, are figuring something's up, you know, something's coming down, and they're aware of it. And uh, so he lays out, and we talked about this on Sunday, uh, I, I quoted Dr. Tommy Ice when he used the word for apostasia as actually a better translation is departure. And after the departure, then you have the Antichrist being revealed. And uh, we went to Daniel 9, verse 27, which says that he, the Antichrist, will make a covenant with the nation of Israel for one week or one seven-year period of time. And then it tells us that in the middle of the week that he's going to break the covenant. And this ties in with Second Thessalonians 2 again, after the rapture, then the man of perdition or the man of sin will be revealed. Paul gives them clarity by telling them he's the one who's going to go, take away, he's going to go into the temple and make himself to be God. And that's all laid out in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Well, Daniel tells us that there will be this peace treaty that is signed, and in the middle of the week, he causes the sacrifice to come to an end, and everything changes. Now, Jesus talked about this event, uh, just as Paul did. Jesus, in Matthew 24, said, When you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, whosoever reads, let him understand. Paul had to write Second Thessalonians so that they would Remember what he taught them in First Thessalonians. He says, don't you remember when I was with you, I told you these things? And he didn't want them to be troubled. Then we talked about what would happen after this event. In Matthew 24, the Lord says, run. And then I took you to Isaiah 16, which tells us the place that they run to. And that place is called Petra and Basra. And... Um, We quoted, at this time, Zechariah chapter 13. It not only tells us where they flee to, but when you read Zechariah, it tells us how many of uh, the Jewish people are gonna make it and how many aren't. And I'm gonna quote that. I'm quoting Zechariah 13, verse eight and nine right now. Uh, It shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds will be cut off and killed, but one-third will be left in it. Now, the one-third is a remnant that's going to make it to Basra or Petra. And when we read in Revelation 12 where the Antichrist couldn't get to them, it says he goes back and makes war with the woman or Israel. That brings us to verse 9. He says, I will bring one-third through the fire. I will refine them as silver is refined, and I will test them as gold is tested. So. Uh, we read in Revelation 14 of this event And it says that uh, they will be there for a times and times and half a times So they'll be there for three and a half years And during that time, what, what does Zechariah tell us he, the Lord is doing? He's refining them as gold is being tested And basically they're being broken to the point Where it says that I'll test them as gold is tested And then it says, and then they will call on my name. And then the Lord says, I will answer them, and I will say, this is my people. We quoted Jesus' last words to Israel when they rejected him. He says, you're not going to see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Zechariah tells us that this remnant, this one-third that makes it to Petra, it's sort of a slow testing and breaking down where they finally get to the point where they say, Lord Jesus, please come. And he says, I will answer them, and this is my people. And that brings us to Isaiah chapter 63, where we have the fulfillment. We read more detail in Revelation 19. What we have in here is who is this who comes from Edom and Basra? Well, that's modern-day Jordan. And remember on Sunday, I put up on the screen how far it is from Megiddo to Petra, exactly 1,600 furlongs. And it's exact, I mean, right to the number. It says the blood will come up to the horse's bridle um, for 1,600 furlongs, the exact distance from uh, Megiddo to Petra. And, you know, it's the nations of the world that are gathered together, if I quoted Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and plot this vain thing that they're going to fight against the Creator of the universe? And it says, "He who sits in heaven will laugh and hold them in derision." The, the utter futility of thinking you can fight against the Creator of um, of all things. So, as we get towards the end of uh, the book of Isaiah, as we look at the first six verses of. Isaiah chapter 63, um, this is yet future. It has not yet been fulfilled. We are we're watching uh, this little video that shows us, uh, they quoted uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, that we are to know the times and the seasons. And when they begin to intensify, well, when these things begin to happen, right, then look up because your redemption draws nigh. Really good place for an Amen. Okay, so that's a little background, and I know it's a review, but in these times, it's important to have the right chronology. I'm going to be quoting McGee in just a little bit as he talks about um, um, these events, in particular, um, the tribulation period. So that's the the first six verses. We went through that. If you weren't here on Sunday, you might want to pick up the DVD on that one. All right, verse 7. Let's read 7 through 19. We have a, a complete change in content at this point. And um, it's like turning on a light <laughs> from, from darkness. It's the prayer of the remnant. It says, I will mention the loving kindness of the Lord and the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord has bestowed on us and the great goodness towards the house of Israel, which He has bestowed upon them according to His mercy, according to the multitude of His loving kindness. For He said, "Surely they are My people, children who will not lie." So He became their Savior. In all their affliction, He was afflicted, and the angel of His presence saved them. In His love. In his pity, he redeemed them, and he bore them and carried them all the days of old. Now, a lot of this is going to uh, be talking about, um, um, like down in verse nine here. In their affliction, he in their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. Um, I believe, referring to the Lord, supernaturally preserving them for the forty years. His presence was in the cloud. Um, it shaded them during the day, and it was a fire of light by night. And it was there for, it was there for 40 years. And when the cloud moved, that's when Israel moved. When the cloud stopped, that's when they stopped. And they got the manna every single morning. The angel of his presence saved them. And we have the Shekinah, literally glory of God, uh, over them. Uh, Every day for for 40 years, supernaturally protecting them. And even though they did that, in in verse 10 it says, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit, so he turned himself against them as an enemy and fought against them. Now, in here it says Exodus 23, verse 21. I'm actually going to have you turn there to the book of Exodus. Let's go to chapter 23. And uh, look at verses 21, 20 and 21. Exodus 23, verse 20. He says, behold, I send an angel before you to keep you in the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. And he's talking about bringing them into the promised land. But then he says, beware of him and obey his voice. Do not provoke him. For he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. All right, let's go back to Isaiah 63. And um, this is, you know, when, when they were provoked, we had um, the serpents rising up and biting them. And they began to die off. And uh, then they repented and asked Moses to pray for them, and he did. And this was an ongoing cycle uh, throughout their whole journey. Verse 11 Then he remembered the days of old, Moses and his people saying, Where is he who brought them out of the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who put his Holy Spirit within them, who led them by the right hand of Moses with his glorious arm? Dividing the waters before them, um, you know, just the magnitude of what we just re- are reading right here, where he, they split the the sea, and he's making reference of it here, and then having the sea come back upon uh, the the Egyptians and Pharaoh's uh, chariots. You can Google it today. You can Google chariots and the Red Sea and watch what comes up. And they're still there. They found them. And that's what's being alluded to here. Who led them by the right hand with his glorious arms, dividing the water before them to make himself an everlasting name. Who led them through the deep as a horse in the wilderness that they might not stumble. And as a beast goes down into the valley, and the spirit of the Lord caused him to rest. So you led your people to make yourself a glorious name. Look down from heaven and see uh, from your habitation holy and glorious uh, where are your zeal and where is your strength and the yearning of your heart and your mercies towards me. Are they restrained? Doubtless you are our father. And though Abraham was ignorant of us and Israel does not acknowledge us you, O Lord, you're, for, you're our Father, our Redeemer. Uh, from everlasting is your name. O Lord, why have you made us stray from your ways and harden our hearts from your fear? Return t- to your servant's sake, the tribes of your inheritance. Your holy people have possessed it, but just for a little while. Our adversaries have trodden down your sanctuary you have become like those of old over whom you have ruled those who were never called by your name now as we read about this it's in context uh, in verse seven above it it says the prayer of the remnant and it's actually really speaking of what the remnant goes through as they're reliving and recounting all that God has done for them in the past. He's doing for them again in the future. So I'll just quote a little bit of McGee here. He says, If these attributes were not evident, we would all be consumed today. You can be sure of that. He has come in judgment to take over this earth. It seems to me that he has given men an extra long time to turn to him. And um, it takes us to chapter 64 and i can read verse one and we could all go home as far as i'm concerned (laughs) oh that you would run the heavens and that you would come down amen that's the way i feel about all that's going on right now oh let's just get it over with lord why are you allowing this to go on and on and on and on oh that you would run the heavens that you would come down of course it makes us think of of um Revelation 22 Even so come Lord Jesus McGee has some Interesting comments on the first On this introduction To this chapter and I Want to quote him a a paragraph Um, He says This too this portion of scripture Is a neglected Section of the word of God We have attempted To emphasize this section So you can see why we hold to the premillennial viewpoint and why we believe Christ is coming before the great tribulation period. The church will be taken out of the world before the tribulation. The Lord will come at the end of the tribulation to establish his kingdom. This is not just a theory. This is what we find in the book of Isaiah. We have looked at Isaiah almost verse by verse, and the prophet has... presented a very definite program. The word of God simply does not give isolated verses to prove some particular theory of interpretation, but whatever your um, yours or my theory is, it has to fit in place. There, ha- there has to be a, an order to it, a chronological order. Some of the, uh, McGee says, some of the theories I hear today remind me of the lady who went into the shoe store to get a pair of shoes, and a salesman said, what size are you? And a lady replied that she could wear a size 4, but a size 5 felt better, (laughs) so much better, she always bought a size 6 or sometimes a 7. There are some theories, as far as the word of God is concerned, that require a a size change because it simply doesn't fit. A popular theory right now is, is, is an Islamic antichrist. Well, you just haven't read Daniel nine, or if you do, you change it to make it fit what you want it to. It says the people, the prince of the uh, the people who is to come who is to destroy the city, it's clearly talking about Rome. And it's from the revived Roman Empire that the anti-Christ has to come, come out of. And um, so McGee says you can't twist it around. And if you follow the, the chronology here, what it lays out for us as we study through Isaiah is um, a pre-trib perspective, and just going verse by verse through, through um, Isaiah. The prophet here, uh, as he begins this in verse 1, the prophet is pleading with God just as the remnant of Israel will do in the day of the great tribulation. This scripture is not written to us. The church is not in view here. It is addressed to the remnant of Israel. But as believers, we can identify with them, our prayer today should be for the return of the Lord. So we want to say amen to that? Amen, amen Lord. Even so, c- come Lord Jesus. But it's clear in this section that Isaiah is predicting uh, Israel's prayer during the Great Tribulation Period and it's what they're going Through it's the remnant two thirds Are destroyed so uh, But there's This chapter is putting an emphasis on what They're going through and how God is Dealing with them While they're in this place for Times times and half a times So let's um, Get into it here picking it up Now in verse Two Where we're told, as fire burns brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your main name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. Just as fire makes water boil, so the presence of God would make the nations tremble. Uh, today the nations are not conscious of the existence of God. They do not recognize him. Um, But there's going to come a time, um, I believe during the Ezekiel 38 war, and that's going to happen either before, during, or after um, when the Lord comes for his church. Ezekiel 38, verse 3. When you did awesome things for which we did not look, you came down. The mountains shook at your presence. For since the beginning of the world... Men have not heard nor perceived by the ear nor has the eye seen any God besides you. Now, of course this is familiar from the New Testament where it says eyes haven't seen, ears hasn't heard, neither has it entered our minds the things that God has prepared for you. He actually has rewards, um, promises. Uh, I like the, the thought of Pleasure's at his right hand forevermore. What does that mean? I don't know, but it sure sounds good to me. And I read the promises in Revelation 2 and 3. You're going to have a new name. Rudy, your name's not going to be Rudy. I don't know what it's going to be. And um, we're all going to have different names. Clearly, one of the promises is that you're going to rule and reign with him on this planet during the millennial age. Our home will be in the New Jerusalem, And evidently, we'll have uh, access to this planet the same way that the Lord came and went with his resurrected body. He told the parable of the talents. And he says, if if you've been faithful in little now, I'm going to cause you to be faithful over more later. So even in the smallest things, um, give me a glass of water to somebody to name. I, I do this in the Lord's name. And he says, even if you do that, he says, you're not going to lose your reward. In other words, he's an accountant, and he's keeping track of every little thing. Every time you share, every time Lane or Paul gets up here and talks about we could use help in the nursery, (laughs) or on the yard crew, or whatever, just taking that part, say, like Isaiah said, "Here I am, Lord," said me, "I'm available." Uh, If it's not ability, it's really availability. Are you available? Are you just willing? And um, so this verse here is this is where it originates from. Um, And we read it again in the New Testament. Verse 5. You met him who rejoices and does righteousness, who remembers you in your ways, You are indeed angry, for we have sinned. In these ways, we continue, and we need to be saved. Now, again, this is in context here of the prayer, um, again, of the remnant. And then these verses that we're familiar with. But we are like an unclean thing, and all of our righteousness is like filthy rags. Well, here's another one that we... um, Is quoted, I believe, in Romans. There's none good, no, not one. All of our best deeds are as filthy um, rags. And we all fade like a leaf. Again, here's just the brevity of of time. I got the word just uh, a couple days ago. Uh, A very good friend of mine, Dave Gonzalez, um, over 20 years ago, He came up from Southern California, and he he pioneered um, a Bible study, in Menominee, Wisconsin. And um, he would call me once a week, and he'd say, Please talk me out of going back to Southern California. Um, I'm not sure I can handle the snow. (laughs) And he would call me once a week and say, Please talk me out of it. So I would. And um, what I found out is he, he died on Monday. And just like that, he's gone, and he's home, and he's finished the race. Um, he did go back to Southern California, by the way. His wife uh, passed away, and um, pastors of church, I was talking to Chris Quintana yesterday, and I asked him if he knew of Dave Gonzalez. He says he's three miles away, and, um, and you just never know. So when we read here, and it tells us that our, we fade like a leaf, you know, you're born, dash, you die. Or you're born, dash, hopefully raptured. <laughs> but either way, the the brevity and the certainty of it is there. And, you know, studies like this, it's really tough when you're raising young children or you're having wedding plans. And you don't want to think about stuff like this. And yet... Um, this is, this, is one of the, this is one of the great reasons that we go chapter by chapter and verse by verse through the Bible. It makes us deal with stuff that we ordinarily wouldn't want to deal with. Somebody want to give me an amen on that? I mean, I'm forced to do it. I can't skip around it and say, this is too heavy. I don't want to lay that on people. Well, then I won't be able to stand before the Lord someday like Paul did and said, look, I, uh, you, said, you said to Peter, if you love me, feed my sheep. I love you, Lord. Well, then feed my sheep. And I want to be able to say, like Paul, that I've given you the whole counsel of God. And I didn't dodge the the tough stuff. And I did try to make it easy when when the Lord is clearly saying, there's nothing good in you at all. There's nothing good in me at all. And we say, nothing? And uh, the scripture says, none. There's none that's good. No, not one. Good to have an amen. That's the truth about ourselves. Probably what the point will probably drive home on Sunday, that reality. And yet, what we see creeping into the church today is trying to do just the opposite getting away from sound doctrine, having itching ears, gravitating towards what people want, what they think you might want to hear. And, um, and yet, uh, the Lord, we shouldn't be surprised because the, the scriptures tells us that's exactly what's going to happen in these days. Um, we, uh, we fade as a leaf, and our iniquities are like the wind, have taken us away. And that there is no one who calls on your name, who stirs himself up to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have consumed us because of our Now, the first seven verses here is um, this reality of of the true nature of every human being. Um, That every person is a sinner and there's nothing good in them. Now, it's interesting, though, that when a person is born again, that you become a new creation, old things pass away, all things become new. And now he talks about making sure that you do good works. James talks about this. And not that the good work saves you, but it proves that you are saved. And Somebody want to give me an amen on that? The book of James is saying faith without works is dead. So that when you are born again, one of the things that happens is you do produce things that are good. But it's not you. That's the deal. Every good and perfect gift, where does it come from? From above. So we've got to be conscious of that. So that when you, the Lord does use, use you in some way, that this is where the phrase, well, praise the Lord. That's where it comes from. Because something good has happened. You're acknowledging that, we have read earlier, well, there's nothing good in me. And um, um, without him, I can do nothing. But with him, what? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so it's just who we're given the glory to. We just don't touch it. I remember Chuck always used to say, you know, people would say, oh, I was um, a good good Bible study. That was a good message this morning, Chuck. And Chuck said, you know, you just need to be gracious and say thank you. And in the back of your head, you better be saying, Lord, it's only you. And I know it's only you. And he often would tell that story and need to. In verse 8, it changes uh, from that, from our nature. But now, O oh Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, you are the potter. Here's another verse that talks about that. We're a new creation. Poema is the idea here of this new creation. And we are the works of your hands. This is what Psalm 139 is all about. David is in awe, fearfully and wonderfully made. All the days were laid out before me when, when yet there was none. You knew me and wrote down my whole life even before I was in the womb. So the question on the abortion issue is when does life begin? The answer is before you're even in the womb. God knows you. He has laid out your days. And then he says, oh, Lord, this is too, this is too awesome. Uh, and it's, it just blows my mind if I count how much you think about me. It's more than the very sands of the sea. You know, I take that literally. If God is infinite and he's always been, then that's a small thing for him because there's a finite number of granular of sands on our planet, right? But I, I take that Literally. And that's, again, we got into this a little bit last week. The the value of something is determined by its rarity. And he talks about the day when he's going to make up his jewels. Well, you're a jewel because you are one of a kind. And uh, in his sight, um, this is just off the charts and blows my mind that his thoughts towards you are continual because of your Being only one of a kind And if you have one of a kind You're rare And that makes you valuable And there's only one of you And so it changes here That he formed us uh, Like a potter forms its clay And uh, we are all the works of your hands Do not be furious, O Lord Nor remember iniquity forever And the good news with that Is that's exactly what he does So you sinned today and you're going to. I, I I think there's a there's a a, a psalm and a proverb that talks about a righteous man, falling seven times, or something along those lines. And I believe that on on your best day, I I'm not going to be dogmatic about what I'm about to say, but I think on your best day, you blow it at least seven times. I think that's what that means, either in thought, word, or deed or action, in some way. And so. Knowing that, um, we have this wonderful clean slate every single morning where it says his mercies are new every single day. Provided First 1 John 1, nine comes into play that if we confess our sins, then what does it say? He's faithful and he's just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The whole book of Hebrews is about Jesus being a high priest who continually intercedes for us. And it's superior to the Levitical priesthood that had to intercede on behalf of sacrifices on a daily basis. But over and over again in the book of Hebrews it says one sacrifice for all time so that now we have a high priest who continually lives to make intercession for us. So when you do sin and thought, word, or deed, uh, in your own mind, we're, we're told to pray without ceasing, right? And so you thought something weird, and it was totally off the wall, and it was sin, and you know it. You say, Lord, I blew it. I am sorry. And I pray you forgive me for that. And he will. And he's faithful in doing that. And he will not remember your iniquities forever. Matter of fact, he says, he will separate them as far as the east is from the west. Well, how far is that? About as far as you can get. And then he says, I'll remember them no more. I wish I could do that. You know, my mistakes from my past or my youth, I know, they're, I know they're forgiven. No doubt about it. I stand upon this book rather than my emotions. I just wish I could forget. Well, the great thing about being God is that when he says he chooses to forget, you bring up some sin that you've been repented of for at least 20,000 times, and he, he goes, what are you talking about? I have no recollection of that. The first time that you prayed it to be forgiven, I forgot about it. So why bring it up again? He remembers them no, no more. And that's his attribute. Verse 9, nor remember iniquity forever. Indeed, please look, we are all your people. Your holy cities are a wilderness. Zion is a a wilderness. Jerusalem is a desolation. Our holy and beautiful temple where our fathers praised you is burned up with fire. And all of our pleasant things are laid waste. Will you restrain yourself because of these things, O Lord? Will you hold your peace and afflict us very severely? Um, closing thought in chapter verse 12 here. McGee he says that the prophet closes this chapter with a question. Will God refuse to act? The remainder of Isaiah's prophecy is God's answer to this question. God rejected Israel only after they rejected him. But if he did not thwart It did not thwart his plan and purpose for them and for the earth. God has a plan that is unfolding. He owes Israel seven years. So we have to get through this, what we call a dispensation, where in that period of time called the age of grace, or the time of the church, the church age, it has a beginning at Pentecost. That's where the church was birthed. But it has an end, too. And that's the rapture. When the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, then it says all Israel will be saved. So you see the order. You see the church age. And then God has seven years. That is clearly only for Israel. And again, this goes back to McGee and his uh, people who want to put in their own theories and interpretations. Daniel 9 should be a slam dunker, guys. For the church not being here during the tribulation. Because verse 24 says, This is for your people and for the city of Jerusalem. A seven year period of time just for Jews. So the church is gone. Now, this is again consistent with the first uh, Revelation 4 and 5, where we find the church in heaven singing this new song. Where'd they come from? From every tribe, tongue, and nation. And they're singing this new song because they've been redeemed. Where are they? Well, they're in heaven. And then you have chapter six, verse one, just like Paul said in Thessalonians, Rapture first, then the man of sin being revealed. Chapter six, verse one, I saw a rider on a white horse, and he had a bow, and he went out to conquer, and they went conquering. It's a picture of the Antichrist. then then you have from chapter six to sixteen a very precise seven-year period of time that is dealing with Jewish people, not the church. So Gies, again in closing, says, God rejected Israel only after they rejected him, but did not thwart his plan and purpose for them for the earth. He snuck the Gentiles in. He says, I'm going to do something that's going to blow everybody's mind. I'm going to save Gentiles. And when Cornelius got saved, they couldn't believe it. That during the middle of the Bible study that Peter was given, the Holy Spirit falls on Cornelius and everybody that was there. And they were all baptized in the Holy Spirit. And they go, the guys that were with Peter go, Wow, God saving Gentiles? Inconceivable, unbelievable. And then we had the beginning of, of, um, of course, the church age. And then he closes with this. God has carried carried through with this program, which has not yet been finalized. As we get through 63 and 64, um, let me just point out something. Go back to chapter 60, and I want to show you something about, that's strange about chronological orders in the Bible, and I'll leave you with this thought tonight. In chapter Sixty, it is about the kingdom age, okay, and um, the Gentiles will come to your light and the kings of the brightness to your rising, and the glory of the Lord has risen and and covers the whole earth well these are millennium scriptures. this is chapter sixty, but when you get to chapter sixty one um, we have um, Events that clearly are in the future, 62. um, We go back in time in in 61 uh, to when Jesus uh, quoted these scriptures in Nazareth. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Well, chronologically, this should be first before chapter 60. Are you guys following me on this? In other words, there's not a chronological order here And um, that's why Nehemiah really is out of place if you look at it from a chronological point of view in the Bible and uh, where they place it. Now I say that because when you get to Matthew 24, you actually read about the second coming where it says every eye will see him as the lightning shines from the west even to the east, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Well, then you read a little bit farther on and you have all these scriptures about the rapture. Well, the rapture happens before the second coming of Christ. And my only point there is it always doesn't follow a chronological order. Is everybody with me on that? If you get that much down on what we're going through, we're going to finish up this book next week with um, a real clear view of the, what's going to happen after this terrible period of time that we read about here tonight with the remnant, the whole tribulation period, how the, the book will end, of course, is the kingdom age, some of the things that will be taking place during the millennium. And in saying that, let's go back and we'll read one more verse. Let's look at chapter 64, verse 1. Oh, that you would run the heavens and that you would come down. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, oh, that you would come. Thank you for Wednesday nights that remind us once again that, as we were saying earlier, this world is not our home. We are just passing through. So help us not get all hung up and shook up about things that come and go in our life. We thank you, Lord, That you do forgive us when we blow it and we fall short. That you are this high priest that continually lives to make intercession in our behalf. Too good to be true. And we're so grateful, Lord, for it just creates this attitude of gratitude that we have. We can only offer you that which you ask. And that is the sacrifice of our praise and our gratitude towards you. So we do love you, Lord. We thank you for your grace being new every morning. And Lord, as we finish up the book of Isaiah, we thank you for the glorious future that lies ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.